If you're listening on Black Friday, November 24th of 2018, that means you can save big on everything in the Taunton store. Head over to tauntonstore.com to save an extra 20% off the 2017 Fine Woodworking Archive. Plus, the complete illustrated guide to woodworking is marked down 40% today only. Use code GIFT20 for extra savings. Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. I'm your host, Ben Strano. And with me this week are Mike Pekovich. Hi, guys. And Matt Kenny. That was <laughs> peppy. <laughs> I was just trying to make up for the lack of enthusiasm in the room. Okay. <laughs> Hi, everybody. How's it going, guys? I'm doing all right. You ready to talk about woodworking? <laughs> and we just lost 55% of our audience. And me. We'll get them both back eventually. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now let's uh, let's jump right into the questions because sure. we need something going on. All right, so I this one's from Sam. I am planning to build an electric guitar body out of a piece of tree trunk I was given as a gift. I, I don't think I realized it was given as a gift. A piece of tree trunk. Happy birthday for the man who has almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> a tree trunk. The slice of trunk has a very nice spalting throughout it, but also has some cracks where it was not stored properly after being cut. At least one of these cracks goes all the way through the slice. I have never worked with spalted wood before. Is there something like epoxy I can use to fill the cracks, or should I just try and work around them? Is there anything I should know before working with spalted wood? For example, does it crack easily along the spalting, or will it be less stable than regular wood? This guitar will be a solid body, so I do not need thin pieces for the top or bottom. Yeah. Where should we start? There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Let's start, forget about spalting, and just making a guitar body out of a slice of a piece of wood. That's that's really all ingrain. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like a cookie cut from a tree. Yeah, so so guitars have strings. And he's good. You make them, <laughs> <laughs> and you need to tension them to a certain amount in order for them to like make the sounds they're supposed to sound. Burn. And so that times six, it's a fair amount of, of stress. Like usually, it's the stress on the guitar neck because that tends to be like the thinner part, and the the body tends to be made out of long grain stock, which is fairly stable. And grain, um, yeah, you're just going to snap that sucker, I think. I think there's yeah. a reason why you don't see yeah. end grain guitars. So right. that doesn't mean you can't use this um, yes. end grain as a like a show veneer. Right, because so. yeah, he said he doesn't need thin pieces for the yeah. top and bottom wrong. <laughs> you do need thin pieces for the top and bottom. Clued over strong wood. Yeah, because that's the only way you can make this is yeah. by cutting it into veneer. And laminate it to a solid body. So if it's spalted, this was spalted maple, so you can do a solid maple body, soft maple's fine. Yeah. And just veneer that. And I would think that that, if you slice it enough, and it's already sort of kind of punky and checked anyway, I don't think you're going to have movement issues. You were concerned a little bit, Matt, about things moving around. Well, ingrain moves... Uh, far more than uh, e- even flats on lumber. It's very, it's and it moves in all directions. Okay. It's really funky. And you, what you want to do is cut this. So, 
I guess this is how I would make it. First, you want to decide what the core of your body is going to be. Personally, I mean, I don't know anything about making guitars. This is, I'm looking at this strictly from a woodworking perspective. You want the core to be as stable as possible. Mm-hmm. So I perhaps might make some uh, solid core plywood or something like that. Yeah, I think solid wood's fine. You think solid? Yeah, fine? solid wood traditionally ash, maple, okay. mahogany, so, walnut, color. Well, for a guitar, but would you? I'm, yes, I mean for I, a guitar. Yeah, if it was yeah, just a guitar, yeah. but it's he's trying to glue down ingrain to it, and that's yeah. where you might have problems. Uh, so, okay, let's say you're going to use solid wood. I would use quarter sawn. Okay, so it's not expanding across its width and only in its thickness. All right. Uh, thing, all the guitar makers are going like, what? Uh, but, but because he wants to glue down this ingrain to <laughs> He didn't send it into a Luthery podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so then I would, like we said, we, I would cut the veneers kind of thick. I would glue them down to the blank, which at this point is rectangular or whatever shape you need it to be uh, initially. And then I would work the veneer down to – or the, the ingrain down to veneer thickness. And yeah. It needs to be like a 330 or less of an inch – you know, 330 seconds of an inch or less. That's going to be a bear. Yeah, it's not going to be fun. But make it oversized, and here's why. So that way you could sharpen up a low-angle jack plane, for example, and hand plane it. Mm-hmm. It'll tear out around the edges, but it won't matter because you're going to cut it off. That's a good idea. So I would do, that's how I would do it. And uh, I have no clue if that's musically sound for instrument making, but. Sure. Uh, sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's going to look cool. And we all know that cool looking yeah. instruments sound better than lame looking instruments. And you had the point, Ben. It needs to be a design which is flat across the surface and not yeah. really contoured. Yeah, so I wouldn't do a Les Paul style body out of this or anything like that. Well, uh, yeah, Telecaster, could, and then the, yeah. the, the success rate of if you were to cut this into something some resembling veneer thickness, like start out an eighth of an inch, and you try to bend it, it ain't gonna, it's not no. gonna work. It's gonna break. Well, I mean, spalted wood, spalted end grain, an eighth of an inch thick. You're is, not gonna be able to take it off the bandsaw without it breaking. Yeah, probably. Another name for spalting is rotting. <laughs> <laughs> so all that yeah, attractive all, rot, it's yeah. all, but rot nonetheless. It's probably all punky and soft. Yeah, some of yeah. Usually there's areas punky. Usually you hit that with like super glue or something. I would if I got this on, I would probably just use like a little. Sque- I would just squeegee on epoxy across the entire surface because it's end grain, so it'll soak it up. Yeah, yeah just well, kind of consolidate yeah. that whole thing afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Um, the only That's- acceptable use of this without altering it is to make a banjo. Because it's a giant cookie, and it would it you put like three or four necks on it. Yeah, like cheap trick, like a cheap yeah, trick like banjo. Rick, Rick, Rick Nielsen. Yes, yeah, it would yeah. be awesome. And you spin it around and for different tunings. Around. Yes, <laughs> it would be. He'd have a special made harness. This and is it going would... very poorly. <laughs> <laughs> this is. This is awful. Yeah. <laughs> All right, when we, when we start talking about multiple neck banjos. <laughs> But, I, mean, does, I lived in Nashville for 15 years, and, you never and saw, I'm appalled. You, so, but it does bring up a good point. Ingrain is tr- it's very unstable and weak, yes. and you really can't use it in any form other than veneer uh, to, to build something. All right, so talking about ingrain veneer, though, yep. you built an ingrain veneer yes. drawer fonts yes. for 
Mm-hmm. How, how have those held up? They they held up fine. They do in this, you know, up here in Connecticut, where in, in my house I used a lot, I used a wood stove every winter for supplementary heat. It would dry them out, and they'd get little cracks in them. And then in the winter, would, summer would come around, and with no air conditioning, it, my house would be as humid as it is outside, and those cracks would close up. So. You know, it cracks in the winter. It doesn't crack. It's no cracks in the summer. Right. But that's ingrain. Uh, I didn't. It's really they're they're really not even thin enough uh, for what uh, you know I did uh, as drawer fronts. But um, maybe if they were even thinner, they might not move. But I doubt it. It's just it's, ingrain moves a lot. Yeah. So I don't think it's the answer he's looking for. But I think I would set this aside for another project. Yeah, but I was going to say, with all that in mind, it's going to look really, really cool if you do it. Yes. I think that'd be an amazing-looking thing. Yes. So. Yeah. yeah. Try to find some spalted wood that's long grain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's easy. You can buy spalted lumber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can make your own. You can make your own. We read an article on making your own spalted lumber. Yeah. Writing it down. All right. This is the problem when I'm hosting. I have to make notes for the shop for the show notes. All right. Well, um, I think we uh, somewhat recovered from that banjo incident. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's this is a, this is a good uh, transition though. So this uh, second question is from James. In Shop Talk One Forty Five, you discuss planar sleds, Mike. I want to cut some cherry to approximately one eighth of an inch in thickness down to three sixteenths of an inch for veneer. Should I use a fixed sled, i.e. melamine sled, attached to the thicknesser, or fix the veneer to a sled and use the machine in the normal manner? Um, I'd say there's kind of three options. Uh, what I do is I just throw a piece of half inch, actually a piece of half inch MDF that's sort of hit with a coat of shellac and wax. That lives in my planer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can throw really thin stuff. I can get underneath an eighth of an inch. I don't know, maybe quite three sixteenths. I well, get pretty close. So the problem that you're overcoming there is most planners have like a depth stop that don't it's, go below quarter of an inch or so. Right? There's eighth that, an and then there's also rollers in the bed. Mm-hmm. And even if you sock those down below the surface, those recesses, those cutouts for the rollers, thin stock can catch on that lip. Okay, so this is and you have you have a like a thirteen inch planer, but yeah. it's not a lunchbox style. No, it's it'd be like the fifteen inch planer style that you see with the four posts. Okay, today. so so stationary pl- style planer, right? And this got the rollers in the bed. Yeah. Now most people aren't going to have that problem. You're talking lunchbox planers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So then it's like that. So then in that case, you'd throw it in just to get get it to the come down more raised up. Right. Okay. Um, that can still, depending on the grain direction, I can lose an inch or two of usable stock on the infeed side of the boards as they go through before it hits that outfeed roller to really hold it down. So, but there are, um, we offer a couple different solutions from different authors about how to do it. And um, one of the more recent ones, you'd mentioned this, been about uh, someone who does he taper, he actually glues the stock down to a little cleat on the leading edge? Yeah, uh, it's from a workshop tip from, uh, I think, 150 or 257 or something like that. I'll, again, put put a link to it. So it's a sled, and 
it's got a cleat that holds the veneer in. Um, so it's almost like a French cleat that he, that the front cleat is glued in, is glued onto the veneer. And then that cleat keys into the planer bed. And the whole, the, the, the whole sled, this actually moves the with the piece through the yes. planer. Yes. Mm-hmm. But what it's doing is it's, 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 it's grabbing that front. I have a question yes. about this setup. Okay. So this is going to be one of those, how do you do this without doing this first? It says, the veneer, plane to finish thickness, is attached to leading section of jig, so planar rollers press down evenly throughout the process. So Go get yourself an egg. So do you have you to have plane chicken. that down the thickness <laughs> first, and then you attach it to the jig? Or you just, you, you, pl- you glue it down and it's thick, and as you're going down to the final thickness, it takes it to the final thickness. And that's, then it's there, and then for yeah, the rest of them. That's what I think. Yeah. yeah. So, so you have a, a sacrificial nose, if you will, to you the plane. You customize side. it every time you make it. Yeah. You just bring it down. That's my final thickness. And what Matt is talking to is there's actually a, a section of veneer glued ahead of the slot that the the little cleat fits into. So basically, as you run it through, you don't have a lip of veneer hitting the blades first. You actually sort of have a Sacrificial. section of pre-surface, which I guess is probably contacting the rollers and everything first before that right. uncut stuff. It's what eats it. up the snipe. Yeah. Yeah, it's what it's sort of there for. Oh, yeah. There you go. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What? Um, no, I'll, t- I'll tell you later. Okay. <laughs> so, and the second option is a Michael Fortune trick I've seen. I think it was in an article where he was doing tapered laminations where he has a, um, it's basically, again, it's a, I don't know if it's a piece of MDF or plywood that actually you put the piece of veneer on and slide it through. But on the leading edge, he has, there's a little strip of wood glued to it, and it, it's cut at an angle. So when you bevel the leading edge of your veneer at the same angle and stick it in there, it sort of captures that front edge so it doesn't lift up. And I think on the back edge, there's a, a cleat, and he sort of sizes everything to where it's just sort of a spring fit almost mm-hmm. as it works through there. Yeah, yeah I, there, there is a cleat a, on the back with okay. it. Yeah, uh, there's a better picture that I'll, I'll put. In. But no, oh, that's because the pit, what the photograph shows that Ben has up right now is that it's actually like the jig is. Uh, there's two p- pieces of solid wood on the side or plywood, and then there's a piece in between them. So they're almost like an H shape. Yeah, and your veneer kind of fits down on top of the horizontal part of the H, and that both raises it up. But then you also have those cleats at the front and back, which hold it into the jig. Right. Yeah, Michael always comes up with brilliant jigs. Yeah. Yeah, so we've thoroughly covered one fix. Those are this three. is not how I. Would. Oh, that was the raising it up. Then just 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 raising yeah, it up. Two different types of jigs. Okay. Yeah, but you have a totally different method. Yeah, how it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm doing something that's flat, I will cut my veneer, uh, edge glue it together to get my veneer panel, glue it down to the substrate on both sides and then run that through the planer because all of a sudden it's thicker and it's not going to get vibrate <clears throat> underneath the rollers or the head or anything. So all of a sudden it's like planing a thick piece of wood and it works really well. Cool. Assuming so, it's it's narrow enough to get through your planer. Assuming it's narrow yeah. enough to get through your planer, yeah. So if you're doing a tabletop, well, would you do a tabletop, say, say you were doing a, a dining table with a veneered surface, would you do that to each board Run it through the the planer at your twelve inch width, and then glue up the whole thing as though. I I'm not you know making a tabletop is completely different from making something like a 
a back for a cabinet or something, mm-hmm. which is where I often use shops on veneers is the cabinet back. Mm-hmm. Um, or a door, like a, like a slab door that's, uh, so I'm not sure if I would make, if I were going to make a, uh, tabletop and veneer it, I would probably, I think you'd probably want to use commercial song veneer. I think, I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Um, I don't know if I'd make a tabletop that way anyways. I'd probably make it out of solid wood. But I, yeah, I, I prefer real wood. <laughs> but there's there's definitely reasons to veneer a tabletop. Yeah, there can be. You know, um, you've got English brown oak. Uh, well, yeah, it's just sort of like a pie crust. I mean, a sunburst veneer style thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Right. The other, I mean, there's some other options for handling this really thin stock. One is uh, what I suggested, all the stuff that Mike suggested. Um, another is that you can uh, make it a little bit long and then clamp it at the back and hand plane it away from the clamp. And it'll stay flat as you hand plane it. So Mm -hmm. that's an easy way to clean it up. You can also, instead of using a planer, like I suggested, after you glue it on, just hand plane it after you glue it on. And uh, because it shops on veneer, it hand planes and all that kind of stuff easily. Mm. So, Speaking of veneer and stuff, you know what I used for the very first time and it was awesome? Stuff? A vacuum veneer system bag thing. That's awesome. I wasn't doing like it was for uh, bent laminations for um, rocking chair rockers, mm-hmm. and in my shop I just have a clamp, a form with a bunch of holes, and I just like clamp the thing down with like forty seven clamps. But at Connecticut Valley, where I ran the class, Bob had a vacuum veneer thing. It was so awesome. I'm getting one of those. I mean, don't you have two? I have two of them. Really? Throw one his way. After all the grief I've been given through the years about using a vacuum bag and using veneer. I think there are people in this room who still have not used blue tape to cut their dovetails yet. So. I have two, actually. Uh, okay. I used it once. Jeff? Jeff, have you ever used blue tape? It was Jeff. Jeff's never done it. <laughs> um, so in a vacuum bag, how many leg assemblies can you vacuum at one time? We had, it's really, um, because they're skinny, we made four bending forms. So we were able to do two rockers at a time. Um, It would depend on the the size of the vacuum and the size of the press, you know, how much, uh, you know, how strong your press was. But in theory, you could just fill it up. You could have stacked them up. Yeah. Yeah. I just didn't want to make that many layered MDF bending forms. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Okay. So we are going to move on to... Every single time in the past, like three episodes, I've screwed up something like this, and I didn't change the slide. And it says all-time favorite technique, even though last time did we do all-time favorite tool, whatever. But at we're going to do the, the script is correct. The script is correct, yeah. and we're all prepared for it. Yeah. So we're going to do all-time favorite shop storage of all time. Cool for right. this week. And it sounds off the cuff, but actually everything we're saying is scripted. Every response, <laughs> every so moment. good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we really think about all this horrible banter and <laughs> bad jokes, and we write them down and we approve them. Ben size, huh? <laughs> all right. Who wants to go? You should go because you're the reason why we're doing this. Okay. Yeah, this was my idea. Uh, something new to do. So I recently. Uh, you know, I moved into a new shop, 
and uh, with concrete walls. And it's smaller than my old shop. And I have, so I couldn't bring all my storage with me. In particular, I couldn't bring my nice big tool cabinet. Uh, what happened to that tool cabinet? It's in storage right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just there there wasn't room for it. So, um, so I hung some. Uh, I, I took a piece of eight by four plywood, ripped it down the middle to get two two by eight sheets of plywood. Rather, hung those on the wall in sleepers, painted them, and then I was like, all right, it's time to start hanging stuff. And I needed a way to just I, stuff that needed to get off the sharpening station and all that. So, I had marking gauges. I have. Uh, what I call the whackers and smackers, my hammers, and then I had my hand saws. So that's what I started with. I wanted to get those things up and out of the way as quickly as possible. And what I ended up doing was just going to a simple L bracket, which uh, John White put up in the fine woodworking shop a long time ago. And it works really well. So there's the first one that Ben is showing is the one for my mallets and hammers. And it's just two pieces of dug fur that are screwed together with butt joints. And then there's holes in the horizontal part of that bracket. And the uh, mallets and hammers, the handles just drop down through the holes. And it holds them. Uh, it's really nice. I like it a lot. It looks good. And then I made, when I did that, I realized, oh, I could make the same thing pretty much for my marking gauges. So it's just a smaller one with smaller holes in it. And um, the marking gauges, the the stem of them or the bar drops down through the hole and the fence rests on the horizontal part of the uh, of the bracket. So, and the good thing is, I mean, the, all that stuff is so light. I didn't put any like uh, supports or anything under the bracket, you know, like- Didn't need like little- Gussets. Gussets. Yeah, I didn't reinforce corbels, it. Yes. Corbels, no corbels. Uh, I actually milled up some material to, to make uh, gussets, but I just never, I didn't put them on. I was like, I'm too impatient. And they don't they don't need it anyways. All that stuff is so light. Um, and so then I decided to do something similar for my hand saws. And what I did there was, that since the hand saws really wouldn't fit through holes, um, I just uh, put... Uh, notches in them are, are, I guess they're notches, right? Slots. Slots. And, uh, you know, the Japanese saws that I have work really well with this because the handle comes down and it's, and it's bigger in diameter, I guess, than the blade is thick. So you can slide it in there and the blade just rests on top of the, uh, the horizontal part of the bracket. End of the handle. Yeah, the end of the handle yeah. does. Yeah, so that works really well. The traditional Western saws that I have are a little trickier because usually the pistol grip handles, they have like a curve on it, right? So they, right. they want to rock out. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. oh yeah, whoever wrote that one? Was yes. On. Um, so uh, what I do now is, if you could just catch the teeth of the saw in the back of the notch or the slot, it holds it vertical. Oh, right. yeah. So just that kinda, one, like just kind of shove it in there a little bit, just jam it in there. <laughs> just, in the in the in the heat of the moment, you re- I, that that's. Well, so I think that's ripe for issues. So I hung it up and I was like, I'm going to like this one until a saw falls down and breaks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm not going to like it anymore. So what I'm going to do is I believe that I'm just going to buy some leather. And, uh, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, attach it at one end and then just have it so it comes on, you know, I can hook it over something at the other end. Mm. And then it's just, you know, uh, a little strappy there, something like that. 
or I might use some cord or something, you know, maybe some, uh, some, I have some bungee cord. Why not just put a little lip on the, on the front of that, that bracket? A lip? That uh, would, that would keep the, the handle and the, from, the lip from has a slot out. in it as well. Yeah. So yeah. You can pull the, that out. matches the Yeah. Slot. There yeah. you go. There's a solution. Yeah, I don't like the Duh. strappy thing. Cause if you have to like, you have three saws in there, if you have to do the strap to get one of the saws and then one of the other saws falls That's, out. Yeah, Cause I've, they're all like excited. <laughs> no, use me. I've got a strappy thing issue going on. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. So I'll do the little lip. That's a good solution. Cool. That's my, uh, but we have, I, there's so many things that we could talk about in this, in this genre of, I think there is, I think yeah. it's almost unending. Yeah, but Mike, of course, is going to pick a tool to talk about this week. I am keeping this pretty straight up. Oh, come on so, now. All right. Where are we going? What you got? Um, all right. So I've got like a big old wall-hung tool cabinet that has all my tools in it, and it's got everything I need, and that's great. And then I have, um, when I teach and travel, I made a smaller traveling tool chest. And so there's always the ritual of getting ready to travel, pulling the tools out of my tool chest. Go back to the big one. Do we do that one? There we go. I um, oh, you already sort of jumped ahead? Yeah. Okay. So, um, oh, gosh. Can we start I this really over? I really screwed you, didn't yeah. I? Let's, yeah. Uh, the ritual of getting ready to yeah. go. So, it's the whole thing, the, the, transfer, the transferring of the tools. So, you know, from the, the uh, tool cabinet into the tool chest, everything has a slot, everything... Like has a place, so I know if there's an empty space, I'm missing a tool. Is there a candle involved? <laughs> Some chanting. <laughs> and then, when I come back from teaching, especially if it's like a week-long trip, the getting of the tools out of the travel chest into the tool cabinet is like a wonderful thing. It's like, I'm back home. Things are where they need to be. However... I did find that my chisels live in a drawer in my rolling tool chest, and they they ended up. That's actually just where they live now is in the travel chest. And where were they in your cabinet? Well, I kind of ended up with more chisels than I actually had room for. I have like a sort of similar to what Matt has, but I have a a, a plank screwed to the wall behind my workbench uh, with oh, notches okay, for yeah. all my chisels, um, and I kind of ran out of room for chisels, but. What I also like is that it's like a rolling chisel cart rack kind of a thing. So it's just like, that's just kind of like where they live now. So that's kind of cool. So like the tool storage thing is is sort of my travel chest inadvertently sort of became my permanent storage for my chisels. And they live there. But I still make a point to get all of my hand planes and everything out where they belong to still give me that sense of well-being that I'm back in my shop. I'm grounded. I'm ready to work. But um, so my chisels are – I inadvertently made a rolling chisel cart. Cool. Um, and I kind of bring that to the bench, and they're not rolling all over the, my tabletop. They live there, and it's a good thing. So how long do you have to be in between classes or something for you to empty the, the tool chest? Because I would think if you were only yeah, back for a week, it gets, yes, it does get backed up. There are certain sections, certain times of the year where it's like almost every weekend or every other weekend to the point where I am, even in my own shop, I'm living out of my travel chest. So mm -hmm. that is why when I do finally unload it, it's like, that's like a significant thing. So when we do this again sometime in the future, I will show my traveling tool cabinet uh, because. I had a similar problem, not a similar, similar thing that ended up happening to me. I 
Except that none of my tools ever make it, but never made it back into my tool cabinet at home. And my traveling one just became my permanent one. Became your thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, speaking of never putting your tools away, I um, took a horrible picture of uh, my my little toolbox that's still being broken in. But um, in the back of it, I have um, a beam, if you will, that has my chisels and some uh, calipers and dividers and little square and just a bunch of stuff. And uh, the way that I made it was... It, it was two pieces that are put together and I notched out each piece for the chisels before I put them together. And I, I wound up not gluing it because I figure at some point I'll get another chisel and I want to be able to take the whole thing apart and, and, uh, and put it back together and fit different things in there. So this beam, I thought that it would just hold the chisels and I would probably bandsaw away the, the waste. And then I was I was working on it. I was like, you know, this is really nice having everything upright, just sitting right here as I need it. So I decided to put my calipers in there and a, and a square and other things. But I didn't know how to notch out or how to excavate that little mortise, if if you will. And duh, domino, domino, a domino with like that little four millimeter bit is perfect for making slots to hold tools cool now do those go all the way through because that looks sort of like a thick piece of wood they do go all the way through on the bottom side it is because that four millimeter only goes to a depth of like maybe half an inch three quarters of an inch um the on the bottom side it's an eight millimeter i think or Uh, or maybe a six millimeter taking up the yeah opening up the the rest of the the hole cool very cool but um because I thought you were going to say, I didn't know how to make these mortises, so I used a mortiser. But you did. And you went a complete, you went to the domino. I like that. Yeah, but we, I mean, we, <laughs> we, we wouldn't have a hollow chisel mortise chisel for, you know, three sixteenths of an inch. We have, we have an eighth inch one, I believe. Really? No, quarter. Quarter inch. Yeah, we have a quarter inch Way one. Way too big. See? Yeah. Right. Um, but well, it's, it's, it's just this beam. In the back of my tool cabinet, and it it holds, you know. That's where you keep your Altoids. I love the Altoids. Tin yeah, notch. I've That's got cool. I've got Altoids tins notched into the back um, to hold one holds uh, router plane blades, and the other one holds the other accessories for my rabbit plane. You need a third one that actually holds Altoids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm just oh, kidding. What? I've got. Did you feel okay. conflicted that you're using a fest tool to machine part of your hand tool chest no, instead I giggled of like the whole time pulling out a mortise chisel giggled. and knocked it out? I love it. Yeah. yeah, why don't you use a mortise chisel? Because I a have no desire to ever use a mortise chisel. Oh, sad. And B, I have a domino. <laughs> I'm with you. I was. Somehow accused of a logical disconnect by using a table saw blade to cut the dovetails for my hand tool cabinet. That somehow, because it held hand tools, it had to be make, made with hand tools, which is nice. Yeah, I think sure. that's there's a certain symmetry there. But on the other hand, um, I don't ride my bike to the lumber yard to get my lumber either. So, <laughs> all right, it actually reminds me of the same thing when I was doing the fifty two boxes things, and people would like ride in and say, "What's fifty two? What?" The 52 boxes in 52 weeks. Oh, 
heard of that. You've heard of that? There's yeah. a book coming out next spring. Oh, really? Yes. It's wow. going to be amazing. Um, I would get these emails from people like, well, this isn't really a, this isn't a box. And I would just respond, that's funny. I thought I was determining what the boxes were and not you. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I didn't consult you when I started this. Wow, this, this is starting to get a little bit dark. Hey, let me ask you a question about your book. Okay. Um, now, I know this started out as a journal. You made 52 boxes in 52 weeks. Yes. However, if I buy this book, am I buying this book with an aspiration or a recommendation that I myself make 52 boxes in 52 weeks? I would be severely disappointed if you did not, buy, did not. If you okay. did not at least try. Okay. So yeah. if I am going to pick up the book, I should be making right. that commitment before I No, get you going. should buy the book. You should buy you what you should do is buy 52 copies of 52 boxes <laughs> in 52 weeks. <laughs> and that would be sufficient. Well, if you do, use the code GIFT20 at the taunt and start. <laughs> no, the book is not ready. It's not up for sale yet. It goes, it'll be ready for sale in the spring. I think I'm not supposed to say that yet, but you can say it. Yeah. In May, I believe, is when it's going to go on sale. So, can you decide that a scone recipe is a box? I mean, you you can't. <laughs> You're claiming this power of... Of, of, of what is a box. <laughs> yeah. Oh, some people are like, oh, that's not a box. It's Let me round. take a sip of box. It's a canister. I'm like, oh, yeah. All right. It's a box. All right. <laughs> round boxes are weird. All right. On that note. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, question number three is from our friend Dean. I had a number of pieces to flatten on my long bed eight inch joiner. How thick of a cut is optimal for flattening? Should one take one heavy cut or, success, or successive light cuts to flatten a board? With the latter, if a board longer than the infeed table has a high spot near the end, will it will lift the board out of plane and create an arch. And another observation, since we are taught to reference a piece of a piece off the outfeed table to flatten, why is the infeed table longer than the outfeed table? Inquiring minds. So he's asking about like a board that is bowed, right? And normally you're taught to always have two points of reference down on the infeed table. Two points of contact. Two points of contact as you feed it through. And that's why you always go, uh, you always basically want to join a frown and not a smile. Uh, if you, <laughs> yeah, because that gives you two points. Unless yeah. your board is so long that the bearing end on the sort of the trailing end is not on the table yet. So what Dean is saying is as you're moving forward, it's that, it's that arch is sort of rising up yeah. and you are changing the angle of attack. Right. So I think you do the same thing I do. Um, I do two different things. I'll let you say what what you do because my what, what first you both thing, say on three. <laughs> uh, my first uh, approach is so, so I have a board. Number one, I cut it down as short as I can, maybe just a couple of inches over length. There's no reason to be flattening something longer than it needs to be. And so if there's an arch a little bit longer than my bed, I'll hit that leading edge maybe with one or two passes to create a flat. I'll flip the board around. Um, hit it again, a couple flats. So the idea is that I'm creating flats that are now wide enough so that um, 
they're both in contact when I begin to make a, a cut. It doesn't matter that they're perfectly parallel at this point or, or flat, flat, because they're not going to be. It's just that I now have a bearing surface, two bearing surfaces on that infeed table, which is why you want that infeed table as long as possible, because you want that to bridge as many bumps, ups and downs as possible in order to have sort of a stable reference surface as you move it through the joiner. Once it hits the blade, you're creating a flat reference surface, so there's no need for that outfeed table to be extraordinarily long because as long as you're pressuring on the outfeed table just beyond the blade, the idea is that you have plenty of stock, even if it's not 100% flat, there's enough flat area to maintain an accurate sort of kind of reference surface for jointing the remainder of the board. So it's, it's really just outfeed. It's really just to hold the, yeah. the jointed board. You're, you're not bridging ups and downs at that point. There should be enough flatness. And in terms of the thickness of cut... I would err, definitely, I, I would like to take a heavier cut, assuming I'm not getting tons of tear out, because if you think about it on a joiner, if you're taking really, really thin cuts to remove material to get flat, every time you pass a board over a joiner, you're putting some wear and tear on those blades. So 10 passes at, you know, I don't know, a 32nd of an inch um, is doing twice as much wear on the blades as five passes at 16th. So... You know, I shoot for more kind of a sixteenth of an inch. I tend not to go heavier than that, but I don't want to go lighter than that if I'm really just trying to flatten the surface. If you're like me, you just set the joiner to that pencil mark. The pencil mark. That, yeah, that's that right. just happens to be on the joiner already. I put that pencil mark on there. Well, there you go. <laughs> just have Mike come over, put a pencil mark, and you're done. Uh, the, way I, the way I normally do this is I turn the board over, and instead of trying to do it with the frown down, I make it a smile. And then there's, you know, one point of contact. It could, you know, but it's probably going to be more than a couple inches long at least. And run that over and start to flatten it that way. And put your push pad down right in the oh, center yes, of the board. put the yeah. push pad right over that. Um, but it's kind of, I mean, there's a larger issue, though, here, though, in that if you have a board that's severely bowed, where this is a problem. Oh. And you maybe shouldn't be using it for what you're trying to use it for because if you need something that's, say, five or six feet long and that is actually flat, you should start with a board that's already pretty much flat and yeah. because you want a couple of issues. One, by the time you joint a flat into it on one face or the other, it may no longer be thick enough for what you your intended use. Uh, or two... By the time you – after you mill it up flat and parallel and all that, four square, it's probably not going to stay that way. I mean, Garrett Hack is pretty adamant about this, that he does not use boards that have bow and cup and stuff in, and twist in them. He says he says because it's going to go right back to that after you mill it. So, But that's easy for Garrett Hack who mills his own lumber and – Well, it's easy for anybody. You go to the lumber yard, don't buy – Wacky wood, you know. But if you if you go to the lumber yard, buy a straight piece, get it back home, and it bows, you know, because you've got humidity changes and all mm-hmm. sorts of things, and it bows. Set that aside for shorter pieces, maybe. Well, you need to get a board presser, oh. and that'll take that out. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always going to be something going on because as wood loses moisture, it's going to change shape a little bit. Yeah. But I think if you look at the grain and the grain is like squirrely and, and weird and, you know, you just see these boards and it's like there's trouble there. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I, I think there is sort of those kind of red flags at the lumberyard. Stay away from stuff where the grain is really diving one way or the other. Um, but here's another benefit for using Matt's technique. And um, if you're resawing a board that's been kiln dried, so let's say I have an eight quarter board and I um, rip it down the center for two roughly one inch thick boards, chances are those boards are going to cup towards each other. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems like, well, I'll just put the cup side down and plane that until it's flat. Here's the problem with that is that you have some really unequal tension in that board because, in essence, what you've done is you've taken an inch of thickness off of one side and nothing off the other. And what's going to happen is as you try to plane that arch, that cup out of that inside, it's going to continue to cut more You're and just more taking more and more right. yeah. thickness off. Now, here's the thing, though. If you flip it over to Matt's point and you run the, the bow side down, which is the outside face, the more stock you remove off of that outside face, that cup is actually going to straighten out. So this as, is pretty cool. Yeah, so mm-hmm. as you're sort of taking the, the cup off the outside, um, the inside cup will actually straighten out just a little bit. You'll actually increase your, your yield. So, um, And I always do that even if I am taking, like let's say I do work with the cup side down and I do get that inside face fairly flat. I will remove a lot of stock off of that outside face in the planer to get down to thickness, to get rid of that that really sort of case-hardened layer of stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to sort of equalize the tensions in the boards a lot more. So if you're milling in stages over the course of, you know, a, two or three days, yeah, you resaw, you start milling the outside. Do you mill till you're flat or do you mill till you're almost flat and then come back the next day um, and see if it straightened itself out? The times I really, if you're working starting with a four quarter board and you're bringing it down to say seven eighths of an inch, all of those stresses stay fairly equalized. So this whole notion of bring it down, bring it down more, bring it down more over a series of days, I don't think it's necessary. But if you're working from an eight quarter board, yeah. resawing a four quarter board, I think I would resaw it, let it sit for a day. Okay. And because yeah. it's it's going to move, it's going to continue to move. Yeah, after you resaw it, so let it get that initial movement done, and then start to mill it, and then let it sit again because it's going to move again. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you don't necessarily go for flat. Yeah, on that first milling. Yeah, I get flat. Okay. All right. And you expect you know if you start with a quarter, you're going to end up with if you're lucky, you're going to have two three quarter boards. It might be less than that. Yeah, closer to five eighths. By the time you sort of get to the point where it's really stable, mm-hmm. right on. All right. The uh, next question is from Tom. Uh, I am building a chair with several curved connections. Should I try and make angled tenons? Dun, dun, dun. So I have easier mortises to make, or should I make angled mortises and make the straight tenons for better strength? I didn't see the part about curved sections, so now I don't know what this chair looks like. Curvy. Okay. That said, I for me, it's easier to make straight mortises and angle tenons. The reason is not so much that it's easier to make a straight mortise than an angle mortise. It's that 
an angled tenon will have shoulders which are square to the cheeks. And that's a lot easier than a straight tenon into an angled mortise where you have a straight tenon which is parallel to the board itself or normal off, as they say, um, but with shoulders at an angle. So now mm-hmm. I have an acute and an obtuse angle on either side of the tenon where the shoulders meet. It's a lot harder for me to make that joint than it is an angled tenon with square shoulders. Mm-hmm. You either just wedge it and route it or wedge it and hit it in table saw. Either way, it's sort of automatic. Um, and where you may have slightly greater strength with angled, with straight tenons and angled mortises because that um, the angle of the joint is sort of kind of off access to the racking pressure angle. Um, technically, it's a little bit stronger, but I don't care. It's not enough to where I'm going to take the harder route to get there. Yeah. Agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, for me, I'd want to see the joinery that he's using because... Um, but it sounds like it's pretty complicated. I mean, it's curved chair. Yeah. So, but I've made stuff before where I used a wedge to make, uh, but that was where two, two, one piece was angled backwards and the other one was coming at it like this. And so I just used a wedge to do an angled mortise and then also use that wedge to cut the shoulders. Um, that's actually so on you're my, talking a piece like this, this, yes. but not a piece like right, this. not a piece like that. Oh, so okay, so you're yeah, yeah, two different things there. So I, but he says it's curved. So if you have a piece that's coming in at a curve, I get you know, I would go butt joints and then pull out your domino. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean that's that's yeah. a really smart way to get pieces coming in together at a at an angle. But yeah. really, there's there's no one answer for no. what's better. It depends on situation. Angled tendons or angled mortises. It's all situational. Yeah, yeah and also, yeah, I think the, the real answer would be let us see this design you're making, and then we could figure out how to do it. Because if it's like got curved parts on it, there's a whole other issue of like how are you going to hold those parts to, say, cut a tenon, unless you're doing it by hand. You know, how are you going to hold it to cut the mortises? And then, I mean, that further would, I think it would factor into the decision on whether or not to do angled tenons or angled mortises. Yeah. Cool. All right. We're going to try something new. Oh, boy. (laughs) We get a lot of uh, questions that I've been just kind of setting aside because I figured that they would, they create arguments or... Or or not? I well, don't know. We'll, because we'll, we'll they're see. Not, they're not. They're techniques. not. Te- yeah. They're they're not easily answered. Um, so we're gonna start doing some. Or we're gonna, we'll see how this goes. But we're gonna do some philosophical woodworking questions, and you guys do not know the question in advance. Yeah, no. this will make for great pod. I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully, it's better than that that time that I put the questions Actually, in a box. Actually, the question itself. Oh, the question in a box. <laughs> <laughs> the question itself is not even, cannot be determined until it's observed. So it's Dr. not until Kenny. right now that we'll even give it a definite, make it a definite question. For anyone who doesn't know, Matt has a PhD, PhD in philosophy. So yes. I don't think anybody does not know that at this point. <laughs> I have never mentioned it. I only make Ben call me Dr. Kenny. (laughs) 
You actually told me to not call you Dr. Kenny. All right, moving on. Let's see. Would you rather mill lumber by hand or resaw by hand? Define mill. <laughs> Four square. Four square. Yeah. Is it already sort of down to size? I'm just smoothing everything out. Yeah, you're not going. You're not. You're not taking. You're going four quarter and and down to seven eighths. That's not even a question. I would do anything other than rip something by hand. <laughs> <laughs> anything other than. Yeah, this is. I mean, but so, all right, no, but take into account the fact that you don't even with your machinery, you do not resaw every day. You don't resaw no. anywhere near as much as you mill. But four square all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, still, I would, because to me, like, if you want to, say, have a hand-to-only shop, I would say that's a really good idea. But if you're going to make a concession to a single machine, it would be a bandsaw. Like, if I were doing only hand tools, I could have only one machine, it would definitely be a bandsaw. Because I can get stuff down to size roughly. I can rip. I can resaw. Um, I can cut my curves. And then, so, yeah, because of, like, sort of extending that logic out, Ripping by hand? <laughs> well, resawing. <laughs> resawing, which is even worse. Either. Yeah. yeah. Resawing is... Yeah, but yeah. how often do you resaw? Personally, almost every day in the shop. I mean, yeah. all the time. You okay. have a problem. I resaw stuff all the time. Every single project. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. How do you make drawer sides? You got to resaw them. You're not wasting all that material. You got to no. resaw it down and mill it. No, if I'm four squaring by hand, I start with an inch board. I need to get down to three quarter. I'm going to resaw that thing pretty darn close. I'm not going to hand plane a quarter inch of stock off of that thing. No. Yeah. yeah. This is not even philosophical. I, this, yeah. This is uh, so you're asking, probably maybe asking the wrong people because if someone came to me, asked these questions, I would just show them out of my shop and I would get back to work. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I can't imagine why I hold these questions. <laughs> I am a little angry. At you asked yes. me that, so uh, leave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So I'm not th- – see, I wouldn't think about this because I would do neither uh, because both of them are <laughs> – So, so it's starting to, to – your, your answer is starting to disintegrate, right? You can't pick neither. I have to pick one or the other. Yeah. They're both a colossal waste of my time, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't that have is, much time. That is, the pro- that is the question. Okay. What would you do, man? Because you're more hand tooly. No, I mean that's not fair. We, you and I, both use hand tools a lot. Yeah, it's just that we're. I mean, these are two things that are far better done by machine than by hand, I, unless you just love the process of doing it. You know, I think if there's an achievement sense, there's a sense of accomplishment. Look at this. I did this by hand. I would say four square. And if I ever did that, that video would be on Instagram every single time. <laughs> I think I would resaw by hand. Oh my gosh! You have to know because what you gonna you gonna do it with a panel saw? Are you gonna do it with like frame a sp- saw or something? I mean, I think saw? I would go buy a really good whatever those people use. I made a frame saw before I started working at Fine Woodworking. And I tried to resaw with it, and I did not finish the first one. I was like, "Uh, uh-uh. you know, I I'll, I can't say what I said then because it involved words of four letters." But I was just like, "Forget it. This is ridiculous." He said, "Nope." Does it yeah. count if the bandsaw is unplugged and Anissa is spinning the wheel for you? <laughs> 
I think I would rather if I would say I would mill my lumber for square by hand. Uh, but then I would only make things that had really thick boards. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I know for me, before I had a planer, everything I made was three quarters of an inch thick yeah. Yeah. and it looked wrong. Everything, you know, it's like until I got that planer and I was like, Oh, I can make this, you know, a reasonable size for its need visually. You know, I take this back because if I really wanted to use thin stuff, I would, I would not resaw it. I would Follinsby it, you know, I'd be splitting it out. Yeah. So that's what I would do. And I would not start with boards. I would start with logs. And That's build cool. that way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to do that. But if I, if, yeah. you know, in this fairy fairy world we're talking about, then well, if I had to do one or the other. When I uh, came out to Connecticut for the job, I had, you know, the full equipment already set up for a shop. But I came into a garage with just a single 110 outlet. The only machine I had that was 110 was a bandsaw. So probably for about the first year and a half I was out here, I had a shop with just a bandsaw, and a bandsaw and hand tools, I was able to make anything I wanted. It was at a slower pace, but it's actually a really good learning experience, and it is something where if I had to, I could see myself going back to that. So, definitely. The question, not to complicate things, but the question necessarily is not, you can't have a bandsaw, you just can't resaw it. Yeah, that's dumber. <laughs> <laughs> here's something I uh, here's something I just thought about. You know, because people often talk about, well, I really enjoy the process of working with hand tools. Yeah, and there's some sort of it's somewhat implied that working with power tools is inherently unenjoyable. I actually find it very enjoyable to mill and resaw lumber. I really enjoy resawing, and there's actually quite a bit of artistry to it, Mm -hmm. you know, and of mastering the tool, understanding the tool, understanding how to use it properly. And I find it really enjoyable to resaw with a machine. I I hate it. And it's not, it's not just, I haven't done enough. Yeah. It's not just a mindless thing. It's It's not not doing Because at that phase in the project, you're looking at the grain, you're looking at what the wood is doing. You're sort of envisioning what this final product is going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And you, you resaw a board and you flip it open and you see what's there. It's like, that's as much a part of the design phase as anything else. So I think mm-hmm. it's it's these things. Well, why don't you hire someone for five bucks an hour and they can do all this stuff you don't want to do? It's like there's no such thing as this any stuff. aspect which is not integral into, into the final look of the piece, right. especially milling, which seems like the, the most kind of the – brute force, heavy lifting aspect, I think it's incredibly important. I remember uh, I was at Hank Gilpin's shop once, and he said something to the effect of, you know, he has all these pe- he has people working in his shop all the time. He needs people to help him. And he says, you know, I let them do everything except for mill. Nobody mills but me. Hmm. And that's because... Really? It's that... It, because if that's where it starts. You know, if you want really a nice-looking piece... When you cut out the parts and you start to mill them, you got to nail the grain, mm-hmm. for example. So you, it takes – there's a lot of vision uh, there just to know that I'm going to mill this piece like that. And then when the piece – the whole thing is done, it's going to look like this yeah. in the completed piece. 
there's a lot of forethought, a lot of uh, vision that goes into that, and then also a lot of understanding how a joiner cuts, how a bandsaw resaws, how a planer affects. You have to know that stuff in order to get the pieces to where they need to be so that your completed piece is you know harmonious and beautiful. There's so much thought that goes into that. It's not mindless at all. And yeah. if, if, if you're doing it and it is mindless, that's your fault. You know? <laughs> you're not doing it right. You know, it shouldn't be mindless. Yeah. Well, let us know, the listeners. I'm, I'm curious because there's definitely some people who are with me and would, would probably resaw by hand. Yeah. I mean, if you have the proper tool to do it, I guess, you know, some big old pit in the backyard and, you know. You, and two guys in there yeah, with the big old you know, long saw. Yeah. yeah. Just kind of mark out and just a little line on there. And they're just the there all day. Yeah. Back and forth. Back and forth. That needs more quarter sawn turret. <laughs> Not quarter sawn, riff sawn. I like riff sawn. I love riff sawn. Quarter saw and cherry ends up having all that speckle yeah. and crap in yeah. it, which and it doesn't play, it doesn't work well. Griff's on is the stuff. All right. Plus, you also get straight grain on both the face and the edge that way. I stand corrected, Doctor Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last question um, is from Jared. I use an Eclipse side clamping honing guide. The narrow wheel of the guide wreaks havoc on my water stones. By creating a dish in the middle, I flatten the stone on a granite block with 220 grit sandpaper and even rotate the stone end for end as I sharpen. But the damage from the wheel is unavoidable. Is this a case of needing to flatten all the time after every use? The extra steps flattening each grit of the stone keeps it every time adds significant amount of time to sharpening breaks. Yeah, but you need to flatten your stones every time. That's a separate question from how the you know what's the issue with this yeah. wheel. You should flatten your stones every time or every other time at least. Well, okay, so I too for a long time used an eclipse style guide and I hated as I was flattening seeing that that's that stripe in the middle from the from the wheel. And I knew exactly what it was from and it's like I had Shapton stones. I wasn't supposed to be flattening all the time. Felt like I didn't flatten any less with Shaptons than I did with Nortons. Was that wheel that have like diamonds impregnated in it? Well, it was rusty and it just <laughs> it went. Didn't, it didn't really roll. It, it, just, yeah, it just squeaked. And, and <laughs> those can seize up. So if you're yeah. scraping a seized wheel across your stone, I was <laughs> if you have a single track, um, change up your your technique a little bit and yeah. that um, I tend to work sort of by pivoting the blade, I'll work sort of across the entire width of the stone to keep it as flat as possible. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, you're using more real estate for that wheel and it doesn't track a single groove in there. But even if it does, um, I'll use like, you know, one half of my stone, I'll rotate it 180 degrees and work the other end. And if there is a slight indentation from that wheel in the middle of the stone, as long as I'm working across the entire stone, it it doesn't hurt anything. It's a so depression. It's not keeping you up at night. So everything around it is flat, which is what I want. Um, I definitely don't want a dish or a hump, but like a little narrow groove is not really going to affect the flattening. Um, I see it on occasion, but I will, like in a, in a sharpening session, I'll flatten my stones and I'll start with the tools that are most critical, which is a smoothing plane. 
And then if I have to do a block plane or chisel where you're talking about progressively narrower chisels, which impart greater wear and tear on the stone, and are also sort of slightly less important to be working on a dead, dead flat stone, relatively speaking, um, I'll sort of go so wide, really critical, down to narrow. By that time, my stone's pretty beat up. You flatten it the next time you go. So I think if you're you're flattening often enough, the little ridge you're getting from your little wheel is not that big of a deal. But it's not it it's, it's not necessary for you to flatten after every tool. Uh, not every tool. No, no. <clears throat> but I, I I flatten every ten strokes. So I take ten strokes <laughs> and I flatten for a half hour, yeah. and ten strokes and I flatten for a half hour. I mean one <laughs> one thing that I see is he's flattening with two twenty grit sandpaper. That's cool. And th- yeah, it works, but I, I I hear him, man. It, it that gets old because you can only use it one maybe two or three times before you have to throw away the two twenty. Yeah, that that piece of sandpaper. So the I think flattening stings a little bit more when you're using two twenty yeah, as, as opposed to like a diamond plate or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so a lot. I mean, I know that this is an easy answer for me to say because. You know, my I work at the Fine Working Magazine, and when I go home, I work in my shop. Pretty much my whole life is about furniture making. But sometimes, and I, and I but I remember before I worked here, you know, money is tight, and mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to justify spending money. But sometimes it just pays. It you'll have a better time woodworking if you just get the right tool, mm-hmm. and that means in this case, buy a honing guide that doesn't have that tiny little wheel on it. And there's a couple of options available on the market and get a diamond plate. And that's how, you know, so it's an investment in the short term. It stings a little to spend that money, but in the long term, you're going to have more fun when you do your, your hobby, the thing that you're supposedly going out into the shop for to relax. Mm -hmm. So, you know, save up some money or ask for it for your birthday or for Christmas, you know, and that way you'll not be fighting this and you'll have a nicer time in the shop. The other thing, if you're really wearing a really deep groove in your stone with a honing guide, maybe you're waiting a little too long between your sharpenings and you're trying to remove too much steel because if you wait until you're just stopped cutting where you want to be, even on your my core stone, a thousand grit stone, it's six or eight back and forth before I get that burr huh. back on okay. there. And then the 4,000 yeah. and 8,000, it's even less because I'm just refining a scratch pattern. Mm-hmm. So if you're really wearing a big old deep groove on there, maybe um, back off a little bit on, increase the frequency of sharpening, but maybe back off on the number of strokes you're taking on each stone. That might might be an issue as well. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good point. Cool. All right. Well, I think, uh, I think we're going to read some uh, listener comments or a listener comment. Uh, This one is from Geekin in Utah. Fine woodworking can present an intimidating destination for the average woodworker. This podcast humanizes the people behind those beautiful creatives, making them seem more more attainable. However, that knowledge alone isn't what makes this a great podcast. The personalities, whether it's Dr. Kenny's, another Dr. Dr. Kenny, Mm -hmm. Salt and Snark. I spelt my name wrong. (laughs) <laughs> it could not have been any <laughs> or Mike's humor tinged compassion or any of the other regular dandies yeah. <laughs> yeah. or any of those other bozos <laughs> or those other guys 
are what raised this podcast to the next level and has me trolling the archives. Um, all right. So do you guys want to do some recommendations? Uh, sure. sure. We can do a recommendation. Woodworking related, right? <laughs> Doesn't have to be woodworking related. Doesn't have to be woodworking related. Uh, I'd like to keep my woodworking related, though. Okay. Well, Mike, you go first. Though. You go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll go first. Um, if you're designing a project with a dovetail drawer, design it with three or maybe four drawers at the most, not one and not seven, because I'm dovetailing. Um, some drawers for a project right now. This one has four, but a single drawer, I don't get warmed up. I don't, my tools don't get in all the right places in the bench. I don't develop this routine and I struggle through it. By the time I'm hardly even warmed up, I'm done and it's just kind of there. Three drawers, I can work enough. I can do the processes enough to where I get into a really solid routine and all my tools end up in exactly in the right place on the bench and the motion becomes really efficient, no waste of time, no all that sort of talky part of your brain, which is stressing out. That got tired. He's like lost interest by this point and you're just working at a really good pace. Whereas seven drawers, it's like, oh my God, I have to do seven drawers and then that's its whole other stress. So. Design around three or four drawers per piece. That's my recommendation. So my recommendation is uh, a lot of us find it's hard to find time in the shop, right? And we have stressful lives. So go down to the shop one weekend and make yourself a bunch of Kumiko frames. And then when you come home and you only have an hour to go and you're stressed out, go down in your shop and just cut little Kumiko pattern infill pieces and just focus on that. And you'll, by the time you're done, you'll be relaxed. And then eventually you'll have a bunch of nice Kumiko panels that you could turn into. You could frame them and put them in front of a stained glass or something and have a nice little gift for Christmas. Oh, coasters. Coasters. Which makes the holidays less stressful. Which makes the holidays less stressful. Sure. So, yeah, there's a nice meditative quality to, uh, meditative aspect to doing that, which is uh, very relaxing. There really is. I think that's, that's really cool. Right Mine is buying old uh, woodworking and furniture books from, you know, eBay and old discarded library books on shaker patterns and, and things like that. Every night the past week I've just been looking at all of these random library furniture books and you just – there's there's – Three or four good ideas in each one. I think I paid two dollars for each of them. So Do they have that musty old book smell. Yeah, and not okay. in a good way. Yeah, yeah, that's the. I hate that smell. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, that's all for this episode of Shop Talk Live. Head on over to the tauntonstore.com to save twenty percent on your order with the code GIFT twenty. Please spread the word about Shop Talk Live to your woodworking friends and neighbors. Shop Talk Live is dependent on your questions, so make sure to send them in to shoptalk at tauntin.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please click that thumbs up button. Finally, you can keep up with Fine Woodworking on Instagram and on Facebook and look for all of us on Instagram as well. Thanks for listening and have fun in the shop. Roland? Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking's bi-weekly podcast. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's Let's really start. peppy. Woo! Woo! <laughs> I always Take two. To... All right. Welcome to... <laughs> 
Welcome to Shop Talk Live. Welcome to Shop Talk Live. <laughs> <laughs> He's so monotone. He's so <laughs> Welcome to Shop Talk Live.